our text that we will use for a good portion of what we study today is going to be Matthew chapter 19. And I'm going to read to us now from the Word of God, verses 1 through 9. Matthew 19, 1 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Would you pray with me? Father, there is going to be much to unpack, but I pray that there will be much to teach us and train us that we might indeed walk by faith in love and obedience to you and your holy word. Teach us, have mercy on us, spread your gospel in and through us. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. Just number one. Thank you. Have you guys ever noticed that children are often clever? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Scratch opening illustration. Have you ever noticed that children often think they're cleverer than they are? <laughs> because, see, the thing about children, the thing y'all don't understand is that we've known your strategies for quite some time. And one of the more blatant strategies children will try to use to get their way is to go and ask mom for a thing after dad said no. Y'all ever see that before? Yes. No, never from back there. All right. Sometimes it goes the other way, by the way. Sometimes they ask mom, uh, dad for a thing after mom said no which is a bad idea because dad doesn't know. And uh, <laughs> you just don't want to deal with that. Sometimes in the study of scripture, people think that they are also clever by doing something similar to what a child would do when he asks dad for a snack just after mom said no. Because some folks have the mistaken belief that God is different in the Old Testament than in the New. But dear friends... Understand this, God never, ever, ever changes. You with me on that? God has never changed. God will never change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 reads, For I, the Lord, do not change. Guess what that means? God doesn't change. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and yeah, yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. It's true. 
There are things that have changed, right? God has given regulations in the past to people that he then subsequently lifted. Can you guys think of a regulation God has given in the Old Testament that we don't have to obey today? Bacon. I've already heard bacon came out before anything else. Did you guys hear that? Who's happy? Who's pro-bacon? All right, a whole room full of pro-bacon folks. God did give the dietary laws in the Old Testament. But when Jesus Christ came, God lifted that regulation. Why? Because the purpose of that regulation had been fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus' perfect work. Because the dietary laws all had to do with setting Israel apart as a unique people to God. But when it comes to God's perfectly revealed standards of righteousness morality friends the lord doesn't change and has not changed now if you've been here for the last several weeks you know we've been studying the design of god as it comes to marriage gender sexuality and all the rest and we have not exhausted that issue by any stretch some of you may be exhausted by the issue but we have not exhausted the issue but there's a few important things that we've learned from the old testament And you can see them written down in your worship guide, some bullet points about God, right? God is good. God's word is perfect. God knows us and our needs better than we know ourselves. And God has all authority as creator. God created marriage and God is the only one who has the right to define it. About humanity, we learned that all people are created in God's image and have equal value in his sight. We learned that God created us with gender. God made them male and female, and those were different things. Men and women are designed to complement one another, to fill in each other's gaps. And humans are designed by God to work, to multiply, to rule over the earth. But then there's a lot of things we learned about marriage over the past three weeks especially, right? Four weeks, goodness, four weeks. Marriage is the lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. Marriage is the only proper way for humans to experience sexual union. God charges the man in the home with the responsibility of leadership in the marriage. God charges the woman in the marriage to help her husband fulfill that God-given task. And marriage generally, generally should result in children. That, that, that's something that is usually attached to marriage, though unfortunately for some, I know it hasn't been their experience. Believers are only, by God's command, believers are only to marry other believers. Those are things we've learned over the past four weeks. And as we turn our attention to the New Testament, the question has to arise as to whether or not God has in any way changed his standards for marriage and for our sexuality. Did Jesus lift those regulations? Were they temporary regulations? Did they they point to a thing that Christ would fulfill at the cross and therefore do away with or abolish or fulfill or however you want to say it? Or are the things that we already learned about marriage in the Old Testament, are they part of God's unchanging moral design? 
And I'm going to argue that the things that we've already seen about marriage from the garden forward, they are things that are going to be true so long as marriage exists. God's design in the garden was perfect. Man's rebellion against God and against God's design has brought only pain and only sorrow into the world, and God is not going to change his standard. So let's look to Jesus in the Gospels, and let's see how he treats marriage. Again, you can stay right now in Matthew 19. I'll, I'll quote a couple other things, but Matthew 19 is where we're going to end up, okay? First thing, and I don't have these written as points, but there's something you could know about Jesus right away here. Jesus honors marriage. Jesus honors marriage. How do we know? Well, in John chapter 2, we see the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed in his public ministry. The Savior and his disciples were invited to a wedding in the town of Cana, and there the newlywed couple ran out of wine at their wedding feast. And Jesus, by his power as God in the flesh, turned around 180 gallons of water into the finest wine that anyone at the feast had ever tasted. And in John 2.11, the passage ends by saying, this the first, the first of Jesus' signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I don't want to overdo that passage, but wouldn't you agree with me that there might be a significance to the fact that Jesus performed a miracle, miracles, and the first miracle that Jesus ever performed in his public ministry is an act of kindness for a couple at a wedding feast. What we can take from that is this. Jesus is not anti-marriage, right? If nothing else, Jesus is not anti-marriage. He joyfully participated in that event, and that event was intended to, and his, and his participation was intended to bless the couple. Now, second, Jesus clearly upholds the commands regarding marriage in the Ten Commandments. Just another example. Y'all remember Jesus encountering the rich young man, rich young ruler, some people talk about it. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He, when the man said, what should I do to be saved? Jesus cited the Ten Commandments as things that are actually important for that man to obey. Listen to Matthew 19, 16. And in fact, you've got yourselves there. So look down at verse 16 of Matthew 19. Verse 16 of Matthew 19. I probably could have said that clearer. Matthew 19, 16. <sighs> it's a good thing I don't talk for a living. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? <laughs> Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Take note of that one. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a weird little encounter between Jesus and this young man. And this young man believed himself to have perfectly kept the law of God, but Jesus used the law to show the man that there is more to his heart than all that. But in the middle of that encounter, this is a logic point here. This is just a piece we want to handle, to hold on to. 
Jesus cites the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, we've got two very clear commandments that particularly remind us of God's standards for marriage. In Exodus 20, verse 14, the Bible says, you shall not commit adultery. And then in verse 17, the Bible says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Adultery is and has always been a sin. And that only makes sense if marriage is intended to be the union of one man and one woman. Exclusive. Coveting another person's spouse. Desiring to have somebody else's husband or wife as yours is and has always been a sin. And that only makes sense if, those, if, if it's true that marriage is to be an exclusive union of a man and a woman, one man, one woman. And Jesus, by citing these verses, upholds these commands. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he goes against the coveting thing, and he clearly cites the adultery command. So seeing this, again, we can see Jesus is affirming the exclusivity of marriage. So any concept of polyamory, any concept of a thruple, is against Christ. And it's against the commands of God. Marriage is the union of one man, one woman. Now, third, and this is the passage we're going to get to today. Jesus particularly affirms God's original design for marriage. And we're going to see that here at the beginning of Matthew 19. Because if you want to see what Jesus has to say about marriage, the beginning of Matthew 19 is the clearest single place in the Gospels. Because there, Jesus is going to be challenged by religious teachers about how marriage and divorce are to be understood. And Jesus points back, not just to the law, but he points back to God's pre-fall picture of marriage in the garden. So look with me at verse 3 of Matthew 19. It says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So we got some Pharisees coming up. Religious men, they hated Jesus. And they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus an intentionally provocative and dangerous question. They're using a powerfully painful topic like divorce to see if they can get Jesus to say something that'll hurt his public reputation and his influence with the people. The question is not a hard question, though. The Pharisees want to know if God's law permits a man to divorce his wife under any circumstances. Is divorce ever lawful? Now, they're probably, for you history buffs, they're probably trying to get Jesus to take a side in a popular argument that was going on in the first century. Because, see, there were a couple of Jewish schools of thought about divorce. Um, it's all over an obscure Hebrew word that you find in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. There was a rabbi on one side called Shemai. And Shemai said, divorce is only permissible in cases of the sexual immorality of the wife. If the wife cheats on the husband, a husband can divorce. That's the only time divorce is allowed, according to Shemai. But the followers of an opposing rabbi named Hillel said that a man could divorce his wife if he found anything in her that displeased him at all including but not limited to things like a bad attitude, 
letting her hair down in public, or being a bad cook. Those were the two arguments. Look at verse 4 through 6. Here's how Jesus responds. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, the first thing in Jesus' answer is it is a stinging rebuke, folks. This is one of those moments where my children would say something like, do you need some, some ointment for that? Right? This is hard. Jesus begins by asking the question, have you not read? I need you to feel that. Jesus is saying, are you people, people who have never opened the word of God? Jesus is saying, you're asking this question. You're the supposed experts in the law, but you are ignorant of a thing that is absolutely clear and absolutely obvious. Jesus knows, by the way, he's speaking to smug men. They think they can trap him, but they're not going to trap Jesus. And the Savior takes the questioners back to the beginning of the scriptures. He doesn't even engage the Deuteronomy 24 discussion here. Instead, Jesus goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And there, in Genesis chapter 1, God created them male and female. And there, God created marriage. And there we see it in Genesis chapter 2. And Jesus says, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, these are the proper foundation for any discussion about marriage. And in the beginning, God created. And he created human beings in his image. Specifically, God made the human race to be male and female. Those are different things. God intends marriage always to be the union of one man and one woman. And that is evident in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And then Jesus reminds the Pharisees of the end of Genesis chapter 2 when he points out that God said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So not only is, is marriage intended by God to be shared between one man and one woman, marriage is the formation of a brand new thing, a brand new union, a brand new family. A man leaves his father and his mother. He moves out from under their protection and out from under their provision so that he can be united with his wife. And the woman leaves her home so that she can become part of a new home with her husband. And the two who were absolutely separate separate things. They were separate creatures. They were part of separate families. They come together and unite and become one brand new family. Now that two becoming one does definitely include the one flesh union of sexual intimacy in marriage because God designed humanity and God understands you and he understands how he made your body. He understands sexuality and God understands intimacy and God designed that one man would unite himself not only emotionally and relationally but also physically with his wife and the one flesh union is going to symbolize this true uniting, this clinging of the couple, this sticking of themselves together so that it should never be separated the one flesh union indicates they are clinging to one another to form a brand new wonderful thing. 
And then Jesus points back to the question of the Pharisees by suggesting these two which have now become one flesh, one unit in every way, one unit under the blessing of God, for the glory of God, by the plan of God, they are joined by God and we should not separate them. It can not be good. It cannot honor God. It is not God's intent that marriage be broken. That's what the Savior says. If you have a bunch of questions in your mind that are raising up, I'll get to them, so just give me a moment, okay? All this response, in all of it, the Lord Jesus takes the discussion of marriage and divorce to a much higher place than did the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees are so interested in finding a way to trap Jesus in his speech or finding a loophole for ending a marriage that they will not... They're no longer remembering that marriage is sacred. They're so interested in some sort of political gamesmanship with Jesus that they don't care about people in marriage anymore. They don't care about the glory of God. They just want to get score points against Jesus. And they forget that marriage is intended to demonstrate the glory of Almighty God. Marriage is a sacred thing. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It is a creation of God. Think about how much of what we just saw right there simply and clearly affirms the things we've seen from the beginning of this series. Marriage is for one man and for one woman. Any alternative to, to this is outside of the will of God. Marriage is to unite one man and one woman in a covenant of companionship. Marriage is to unite a couple as a new family. Marriage is to form something brand new as two become one. Marriage is also the only proper arena for human sexual intimacy. Sex outside of the bounds of biblical marriage is sin against God. The sanctity of marriage demands that we not engage in sexual activity before we're married. Neither should any married person engage with sex with anyone other than his or her own spouse. Marriage is to be the union of one man and one woman exclusively. You got to see that because you got to see that marriage belongs to God. And Jesus referred to marriage as what God has joined together. Marriage is not a thing we get to redefine to fit our culture. Marriage is not something that we can change to suit our preference in the moment. Marriage is God's idea, God's property, and we must submit ourselves to that if we are to submit ourselves to God. And Jesus shows us here. Jesus shows us here. That we don't look for ways to try to wiggle our way out of marriage. The plan of God, the heart of God, is that when you marry a person, you are committed to that person until one of you dies. And wives, you are not allowed to kill your husbands. I just thought it should be said. So... Marriage is the God-ordained, lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. Does that mean, Travis, that divorce does not even exist? Does it mean that divorce isn't real, that Christians should oppose divorce in every circumstance? No. I don't think so. The Bible doesn't back that up. 
But we must establish, as Jesus does up front, that if you mess with marriage, you're messing with something that's a big deal. Do you at least buy that part? Good, because you don't want me to have to keep talking about this, right? There is no way, listen to me, and again, I'm being very intentional by the way that I say this, so don't make assumptions about me until we clarify. There is no way to bring a marriage to an end without one or both of the two spouses participating in a grievous sin. If the spouses are still alive, there is no way to bring a marriage to an end without one of the two spouses at least partaking in a grievous sin. In a discussion of marriage, you start with the assumption it's supposed to last until a spouse is dead, period. But the Old Testament mentions divorce. Why? Why is divorce ever talked about if this is so big? Matthew 19, verse 7, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The Pharisees, by the way, right there, they think they've just caught Jesus in a mistake. They think they've just made Jesus somehow forget the talk of a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24 and some other places in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees have their little, I gotcha. I gotcha. What about Moses, Jesus? Are you turning against Moses? Well, divorce certificates are definitely mentioned in a few places in the Old Testament. And it was part of the culture. Even in the nation of Israel, it's been part of the culture for for hundreds of years before Jesus. Really, thousands before Jesus. And the question is, if God didn't want divorce at all, why would God have ever allowed Moses to in any way regulate divorce? Verse 8 and 9. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus points out, first of all, that the existence of divorce, the existence of divorce regulations, that is a response to the hardness and sinfulness of human hearts. This shouldn't exist. But because of the fall of man, because of the sinful selfishness and cruelty of mankind, divorce came into being. Just like because of the sinfulness of men, hospitals have to exist. Again, think back to what Jesus first said. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's uniting two people into one new unit. And this is for life. There is no way to break that unit without one of the two people sinning in a major way or dying. But what about the passage in Deuteronomy? What about the command of a divorce certificate? I want to read it to you. I want to read it to you and you tell me if it sounds like a certificate is the main thing, okay? Just listen to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and you be ready to tell me, Travis, the certificate is clearly the focus or something else is the focus, okay? Ready? Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and, send, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. How many of you believe that the main focus of that passage is a piece of paper? Any takers? There's something else going on, isn't there? What's the point? This is a passage set up in the Old Testament law by a holy, perfect, and good God to protect women from the cruel abuse of men who would abuse them. If a man divorces his wife, Moses says, and another man marries her, the first husband can't have her back. You say, how does that protect a woman, Travis? It protects a woman... So from a husband deciding, I'm going to pass my wife along whenever I feel like it. Because he might regret it. Or even worse, it protects a woman from a man who might say, I'm going to divorce you, pass you to my friend over here, and then he can divorce you and pass you back when he's done with you. That's what Moses is protecting women from. That's what God is protecting women from. By the way, don't ever let yourself buy into the idea that women were not protected in the Old Testament. The Old Testament protects women better than any culture that ever existed at that time period in human history. Moses was showing that divorce is not a legal allowance for evil, for abuse, for defilement. But nowhere in the passage in Deuteronomy 24 is the passage of divorce seemed said to be simply okay. Moses doesn't say, just as long as you've got the certificate, you're fine. Moses doesn't say, as long as you get the paperwork filed, do whatever you want. No, Moses, under the inspiration of God, is actually trying to act to limit divorce and protect women from abuse. And I will tell you, that the concept of no-fault, easy, flippant divorce has never been a part of the de design of marriage. And it's one of the most evil things that our culture has ever embraced. Then Jesus gives final judgment regarding the question of divorce in general. The Savior says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And that puts Jesus very close to the Shemai school regarding the issue of divorce and remarriage, but not exactly there either. Jesus makes it clear, under most circumstances, a divorce is going to be sin. Under most circumstances, a divorce will lead to the sin that's really in the adultery family because someone is ditching their spouse for another person. And remember, the whole point, though, of the legal loophole that the Pharisees are seeking besides wanting to catch Jesus, the whole point that the Hillel school wanted is they wanted the freedom on a whim to end their marriage because evil men would love the idea of being able to sign a piece of paper, ditch their wives, and pick up the younger model. 
So if they can make it look like God approves of this so long as the paperwork is properly filed, they think they can proceed with, oh, I didn't sin. I got the paperwork signed. But Jesus says that is sin. It's big sin. These people are not free from the sin of adultery simply because they got the paperwork done. God is the one who unites a man and woman and he unites them for life. That's not something that is righteously thrown away by a certificate. Now, we still face the question, though. Is divorce always forbidden? And I told you earlier, no. Must a spouse who has been left by their spouse, cheated on by their spouse... Must that person remain in that marriage under every circumstance? And the answer is no, that is not what Jesus is telling us. You can see that in verse 9, where you see the exception that's present in the passage. The Savior understands that there may be a circumstance where a spouse can, in fact, divorce without being the one guilty of adultery. That's why the exception, except for sexual immorality, is present in verse 9. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and his listeners what people of that day knew to be true. If a wife commits adultery against her husband, the husband can divorce her. And he is not guilty of the covenant-breaking sin of adultery. Why is he not guilty of the covenant-breaking sin of adultery? Because she already did, and she bears the guilt of breaking the marriage. But, and this is a big deal, Jesus does something very unique with his words that steps him out of the Shemai camp and into a far more godly place than Hillel or Shemai. It's in the language of verse 9. We can't get it super well in English, but we can understand it. Jesus uses two different words. One word for sexual immorality and another word for adultery. In Greek, the word moikia is the word that is translated adultery. In Greek, the word porneia, which you guys should think that word sounds familiar, the word porneia is a word that's there translated sexual immorality or impropriety. Big doctrinal question, which, by the way, I think missing this doctrinal question is a dangerous thing. Why would Jesus have used porneia, sexual immorality, for the exception, instead of moikia, which is the word for adultery? And I will tell you again, much like the Deuteronomy 24 passage, that the reason I believe Jesus does this is to protect women from abuse. Why? Listen to something Leon Morris writes in the Pillar New Testament Commentary, which is a really good book. Morris tells you, among the Jews, this is in Jesus' day, among the Jews, a man was not held to have committed adultery by engaging in sexual acts outside of marriage unless his partner was herself a married woman. But Jesus does not distinguish between the man and the woman. Either may commit adultery. It seems to have been a Christian idea that the man could commit adultery. Others regarded sexual adventures as the normal part of life for, a normal part of life for the man. But Jesus lays down the highest standard for both sexes. 
Divorce might happen, but it was not meant to be marriages for life. Here's what you've got to get there. Because again, that, that may have been a little technical. But there were people who believed that the word moikia, the word adultery, could only apply to a woman. That's why Jesus didn't use it as the exception. Instead, the word porneia can apply both to a man and to a woman. And Jesus, by applying the word porneia in this passage, shows that either the man or the woman could commit the covenant-breaking sin that would allow the other to divorce. Jesus protected women. Well, as Matthew writes for us the words of Jesus, he's very careful to help us see the Savior is setting an extremely high standard for marriage. Marriage is to be a lifelong, exclusive union of one man and one woman. Again, all the first century Jews knew that a woman couldn't cheat on her husband and be okay. Jesus just makes it clear that neither can a man. A man cannot cheat on his wife and be okay. And if a man were to cheat on his wife, his wife would have the right to divorce him, just like the husband would have the right, the right to divorce an unfaithful wife. And if he divorces a faithless spouse, he's not guilty or she's not guilty of the covenant-breaking sin of adultery. Make sense? God's good, guys. God's design for marriage is good. And here we can see, if nothing else, Jesus affirms the design for marriage that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. And the reason this divorce stuff is so heavy, of course, it's a hugely emotional issue. You may have a thousand questions. We can talk about them outside of the pulpit. But, but when you see how heavy this issue is, you've got to see that Jesus is affirming the things that we already saw. Marriage is God's thing, God's design, exclusive, one man, one woman for life. Anything that breaks that, anything that goes outside of that, is going against the Lord. Now, before we close, would it be hard for me to make you believe that the rest of the New Testament agrees what Jesus has here said? If I said to you, Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude and the author of Hebrews all say the same things about marriage that we've seen from Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and beyond? Would, you guys, would, that, be, would that shock you? Listen to me. If you agree with me here, it'll save you another sermon. Would you agree? Wow, that was... That was it. Let me highlight just a couple scriptures that show you that the New Testament affirms what I told you. Just some citations, Okay. What was true in Jesus' day was true in the garden is true for us. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound to her, by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is, is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. What's Paul telling us there? Marriage is supposed to be a lifelong union, an exclusive union between one man and one woman. See, there it is again. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So here again, sex outside of marriage is against the will of God. Romans 1, 26 and 27. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Marriage is to be the union of a man and a woman. And going against that design is rebellion against the creator. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of, guess how many wives? The husband of one wife. That's right. So taking more than one wife, that's not part of God's design, and that would disqualify someone from being considered a faithful leader in the church. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or 1 Corinthians 7.39, talking about a woman who's widowed. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Believers are only supposed to marry other believers. And by the way, again, you can see in that verse, marriage is a lifelong exclusive union. What about the idea of the order, the structure in a marriage? God charges the man with the role, responsibility to lead. God call, gives the wife the responsibility to help her husband in, in those tasks. First Peter 3 verses 1 and 2 say, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Or verse 7 in the same chapter, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Yes, the design of God, even in the ordered structure of the household, is affirmed in the New Testament. And Lord willing, our next message is going to help us look into that aspect of marriage even more and walk away with a little more clarity as we return to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 22 and following. That, Lord willing, will start us next week. But now, what do we take with us? What do we take with us as a conclusion to this message today? Start here. God is good. Y'all still willing to buy that? God's ways are perfect. You willing to buy that? God designed marriage. You willing to buy that? If God's good and his ways are perfect and God designed marriage, then God did it right. <laughs> God designed people including the concepts of gender and sexuality and if he limits it it's on purpose because it's for our good and his glory and God has told us what is good and we honor God and we thrive when we follow God's design and we dishonor God and we throw our lives into brokenness when we battle against God's design but I think you and I both know whether it's marriage or some other area of your life We've all battled against God's design, haven't we? We've broken the law of God. We've broken ourselves on the law of God. And we need God's grace. Wouldn't you agree with that? Aren't you glad that God sent Jesus to give grace to his people? You need God's mercy. You need God's healing. Maybe you have messed some of the stuff up royally that I've been talking about. Maybe you haven't messed up there, but I guarantee you you've messed up somewhere else. And God offers all of us God's grace in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life and he died to pay for our sin. He rose from the grave and he offers life. And everyone who comes to Jesus in faith and repentance will find life and forgiveness in Christ. And all who will not bow to Jesus, all who will not bow to Jesus, find themselves under the judgment of God. Friends, God loves us and he wants what's best for us and God's standard for your life and God's standards for my life and God's standards for your gender and God's standards for your sexuality and God's standards for your marriage are good for you and for everybody whether we feel it sometimes or not. May we love God and follow God into God's design the grace of Christ I invite you if you don't know Jesus come to Jesus and find life today and if you have Jesus I invite you to learn the joy of submitting to God's ways today for God's glory and for your good let's pray together father you know we just walked on some very tender ground May anything that is of me be just ripped out of our memories. And may all that is your word and all that is your truth change our lives. Would you, Lord, let this message change us in how we think and how we live? And would you, Lord, if there's places where this hurts, Would you let it call us to Jesus for grace? That's my prayer in Christ's name. Amen.